0: My name is Christopher Peter and welcome to the Christopher Peter Review, where you will experience original podcasts discussing salient current events with a focus on the facts, evidence, and available data of the topics and issues selected. Hope all is well. As I have stated in past episodes, I plan on including more brand reviews, industry reviews, and stock discussions. I want to bring greater awareness towards companies that are bringing innovation, improved delivery, and efficiency to our economy and our society. So let us start off with an industry that is the apple of any investor or investment group's eye. The technology industry will always be a closely watched industry because of the value the industry generates. New product releases, new services, and new delivery continue to offer revenue streams for investors to reap benefits from. I personally believe there will be continued value generation for many of the big-name players for quite some time. The stocks were not so hot at the beginning of the year. Many big names in the tech industry saw stock prices dip as uncertainty in the overall economy kind of lingered. Especially as interest rates increased and changed the financial outlook and funding availability for some startups. As well as the failure of a major bank that focused its client base on the tech industry. We still see many big players in the industry are scaling back staffing levels. Almost a third of a million people have lost their positions in the industry, with Microsoft being the most recent tech giant to announce that it will be laying off 10,000 more workers but it is not all doom and gloom. The potential for artificial intelligence should empower many tech companies to improve the products and services they offer. Make these products and services actually helpful in a customized manner to their consumer, as the programs can learn more about the user and the individual needs. There is a great deal of fear-mongering going on in regard to artificial intelligence. Hearing the Vice President of the United States warning about information being put in and decisions being made by the technology. I am not sure how much artificial intelligence is going to be used to replace the decision making process for business leaders or government leaders for that matter. The realistic current application for artificial intelligence is to replace tasks that are mundane and better done in an automated fashion than paying a person low wages with less consistency and performance. I would hope that companies would not use artificial intelligence to be the final decider in approval of lending, sales, or other. Artificial intelligence can be used in pulling together the criteria or the background researcher. But hopefully, there is a person who makes the final decision. We talked about social media in our last podcast episode. But I think this area of technology is interesting as well. Personally, I feel like there is not a need for any new platforms because there are so many avenues for people to argue with each other in. But Meta's release of Threads seems to be positive as a direct competitive offering to Twitter. A real close substitute. There still is a political impact on social media companies. For instance, there are some people holding left-of-center views who are staunchly against Twitter being privatized and reformed into what is supposed to be a true platform for free speech. So Twitter has seen a decline in revenue and overall value as it continues to reshape itself and reform the product. Interesting to see how this plays out with a direct substitute and if it will check to see if that competitor is too close to its own offering. Politics are also impacting how products like Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram serve their customers. There is a growing consensus around the idea that TikTok is a national security threat and simply not an appropriate app to be using right now or ever. As mentioned last week, there are many concerns of the effect social media has on younger users who do not have a healthy relationship with social media, overplaying its importance in their lives and how they view themselves. How much blame should be on the companies for this or their parents for letting their children stay on these platforms rather than playing outside, interacting with others in a real and direct manner the importance of social media will continue to provide stable revenue and content for technology companies. There is no better channel to market to customers in a cost-effective manner than social media. Sure, television ads may reach more at a single time, but it is a more costly approach to marketing. Whereas, you can create social media campaigns and run them more effectively and efficiently with greater control. There still is great interest in tech finance or fintech. I found it refreshing to experience a town in Maine where cash is not preferred. I have not seen many places where that is the case. But many businesses did not accept payment by Apple, Google, or Samsung Pay. I think these should be standardized forms of payment for any business nowadays. But there will always be business that holds on to the past. I will be interested in seeing how digital currency investing plays out after the fall of FTX and with other traders facing liquidity issues or regulatory investigations. Digital currency will definitely have a place in the market. Too many people have interest in this for the government to turn it away especially if the federal government is looking to make its own digital currency, which is not a bad idea. I think it is safe to believe that the technology industry will continue to be the focus of the investor crowd, like myself. Despite some early volatility, tech stocks are still stable income producing assets. I think this will continue as there is so much untapped potential and great application for new solutions in other industries. Now let us bring in the team for a group conversation on recent current events. The curious actions of Joe Biden continue to raise questions of whether the holder of the highest office in the world is in full capacity of his function, capable of sound judgment, and able to lead a presidential administration that is currently underperforming and rife with controversy. The office of President of the United States is a stressful, time-consuming, and demanding role, where failure is really not acceptable. For the most part, that is all we really experienced during the Biden era. The economic performance is not what Americans want, and the administration understands that there is a performance gap, given the narratives offered to paint a misleading picture of progress. Increased cost of living, higher credit levels, lower purchasing power, and lower overall wealth is not an economy built back better. Our foreign policy is quite the mess. Americans saw for the first time in real time our government leave our staffers behind and our allies. Our influence and reputation around the globe is not where it needs to be. And the world is divided the grown-ups in the room might not be up to the task. There is nothing going right in America. At this point, there are two different questions we must ask ourselves in this situation. Is Joe Biden really capable of leading the United States for another term as president? Should he even run for another term as president? By asking ourselves, I really mean ask Jennifer.
1: Politics is a performance business. Not for the weak, thin-skinned, or unsound of mind. From a perspective of whether he should run again, I think the performance throughout his first term has shown that he does not deserve a second chance. When assessing this question you must ask yourself, what has happened during this period of time that we want to see continue? I am not sure that we want to see the same economic agenda continue for another 4 years. The record level of inflation that continues to grow. While the rate of growth has slowed, it still is a problem. Still reducing the household financial outcomes and still reducing the purchasing power of hard-working Americans and American businesses. I am not sure any American wants to see their retirement accounts lose value or stagnate, their housing costs soar, their heating costs skyrocket, and jobs become less secure. I am not sure any Americans want to see the world continue to fracture. Americans continue to pick up the cost of a foreign war where we are playing no role in pushing either side towards peace talks. Americans are providing a blank check, while our stockpiles deplete and have no real influence on how soon this invasion will end. Is there any American that feels like their communities are safer? Any American who likes seeing their community resources being depleted by the reckless border policies of the Biden administration, aiding and abetting illegal immigrants by moving them in the middle of the night to unsuspecting communities? And is Biden even capable of continuing on as president? I am not sure he is really in full capacity. The recent cocaine scandal shows the lack of accountability and leadership in the White House, where people feel comfortable bringing cocaine into the White House. The people around him are not being held accountable for the subpar performance that seems to be excused away. I think it is time for Biden to consider rethinking his decision to rerun. Based on performance, there really is not anything the American public should want to continue for another four years.
0: I wonder if the decision to rerun was done strategically to delay the real decision to a much later point in time. Delay to give potential Democrats' contenders time to prepare. More so to protect Biden from immediately becoming a lame duck president. If he told the media that he was not going to rerun back when his team released the video announcement, then his transition to lame duck status would have come pretty quick. Based on his performance, there is really little reason for Democrats, let alone Republicans, to continue to work with him on anything of substance. Many Democrats in Congress still have the incentive now to show support because they may want a potential cabinet position or maybe convince his team to make change on the second name on his ticket. Kamala Harris has been a real non-performer in a position that does not garner much attention. But she gets herself plenty of attention for all the wrong reasons. I will now turn to Javi. If Biden does decide to proceed with his plan to re-run, should he consider replacing Kamala Harris with someone who could better articulate his vision for American governance?
2: The vice president position was once described as the worst job in the world because you are so close to the most powerful job, yet you are a second fiddle with little institutional power. The vice president is empowered to break ties in votes in the Senate and serve as the president of the Senate. But the agenda for the Senate is largely assembled by the majority leader. In the past, many recent administrations relied on the vice presidents to handle specific tasks for their agenda. Many served as critical partners due to the political ties in Congress or to voter bases to help get legislation passed or galvanize support around policy actions. And there were times when vice presidents needed to be kept out of the loop because of gaffes, ineffectiveness, or differences in opinion. We all remember that Joe Biden was almost replaced on the 2012 ticket or at least rumored to be considered for replacement. We heard of dissatisfaction with his performance in certain statements he made. I cannot recall a vice president who has performed as bad as Kamala Harris has. Early on during the Biden term, there was talk about her lack of usage. Then when she was called upon, she completely flubbed the opportunity. The immigration debacle is an issue still not solved and really an embarrassment in regards to her statements. She consistently struggles to articulate policy positions in a manner that other pundits describe as word salad or in a manner where a student wants a teacher to think he or she read a book but they only read the front and back cover. As Jennifer stated, politics is a performance business. Harris has simply not performed. But neither has Biden or any other member of the team. The only resemblance of success was narrowly avoiding catastrophic consequences of their own policymaking. So I would think that the Biden team may consider if there is an upgrade. But she is perceived to be important because of her demographics. In an administration where they believe demographics is the most important trait of a person, If Biden does rerun, which looks like he will be. I doubt they would rock the boat by replacing a person of color on their ticket. Especially when the top of the ticket is someone who eulogized a Klan member. Let us pretend
0: for a moment that Biden has a change of heart and decides not to rerun. Comes to an epiphany that maybe it is best for him to retire and leave the political forum. Who would the Democrats turn to as a suitable replacement? Who would their base support or prefer? I would think that the frontrunner would be California Governor Gavin Newsom. Maybe Elizabeth Warren decides to give it another go. And you could never leave out another Hillary Clinton run. She too would need the presidency to legitimize her political career like Biden did. Is there a pipeline of replacements?
1: I would think the obvious candidate would be Gavin Newsom because it seems like they are preparing him for a potential presidential bid. He is making more news appearances and some pundits view him as a suitable replacement. He is fresh off surviving a recall attempt and nothing qualifies a Democrat more for office in the minds of Democrats than voters dissatisfied with one's performance. This would essentially take care of two problems because if Newsom is the replacement Harris could not be his running mate. You would need someone from a different region. Maybe he could run with New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. Combine two people disliked in their own states. The Democratic Party does not have many national candidates that can connect across their base that is growing more influenced by the radical left. While there are valid concerns about the Republicans' rightward lean, Democrats have moved further left than Republicans moved to the right. Many prominent members would not capture a broad base of support. While I think Chris's reasoning for delaying a decision in terms of seeking to avoid a lame duck presidency is interesting, I also think that Democrats do not want another drawn-out primary race. The more Democrats talk and debate, the more voters see how radical their policy goals are. That is how Biden became their 2020 nominee. The declining grandpa became the normal one in a room of fringe progressives. So, if there is a different name on the ballot, it has to be Newsom.
0: Does that not create an environment suited for a Hillary run? If it worked for Biden, maybe she might see it as a workable plan for her in 2024. I am sure people do not want to see a Biden-Trump rematch. But I think we all agree that we do not want to see another Trump-Clinton matchup. Or
2: do we? I agree with Jennifer that if there is a replacement, it has to be California Governor Gavin Newsom. But I think a Hillary Clinton run could be entertaining just for the sheer disaster it would potentially be. The problem with having so many fringe radicals in the party forefront is that it creates opportunities for the underperforming people to appear as the better choice by default. I think Democrats can be honest and admit that Joe Biden was not qualified to be their nominee, let alone president. But he was able to say, I am not as radical and crazy as those on the left of me so it would be an option if they had an open and full primary season. But I do not think they would want one. If there is a change, it might come late or in an abbreviated manner to somehow make Newsom the only viable candidate, probably ensuring no one else contends. Newsom is not a flawless candidate. He was nearly recalled by his electorate. He also presides over the states with the cities with the largest homeless populations in America. Not an agenda we want to nationalize but he is probably the most presidential in comparison to other contenders. Schumer is not appealing enough. AOC is too divisive even in her own party's base. Buttigieg is failing as a cabinet member, so he is in no position to ask for promotion. Would Michelle Obama run? I am not sure she would want to put herself through that. I think she understands that they have more influence in their current ventures. She has a worse political resume than Hillary Clinton, who at least held two important positions. At least Trump ran a global business. Being first lady is not enough. Sorry not sorry. My
0: prediction is that he will rerun and we will have to see how he handles a campaign that is not in a pandemic environment while still serving as president. Not sure how that will work out. I am quite sure that he should hold office again. Again, politics is a performance business. And the results have not been good enough to warrant another four years. The most important question when weighing the performance of an incumbent is whether they have done anything worthy of consideration of extending. I do not think this president has delivered anything of benefit to the American people, our business community, and our global standing. The American people will continue to prop up our economy, which is a blessing having a free market consumer driven economy. But it helps when there is public policy that helps the cause. I think most Americans feel like there is no way we should be at this point given the potential and promise we felt once the pandemic was reaching its end. We will have another conversation in a little while. Now, let us move on to our next subject. There is a lot of talk in our economy about shortages in certain professions. I do work with some educational focus support organizations and a big topic of discussion for the two decades plus since I started my involvement was the potential shortages of teachers. To some degree, I always felt that this could be somewhat of an exaggeration. Public educators are a unionized profession. Therefore, some level of skepticism with claims of shortages is appropriate. From the union's perspective, an increase in membership is always good for its respective budgets, so there may be a perpetual feeling of there not being enough teachers out there. So what is the truth? Are there enough teachers in America to effectively educate the students in our society? First we have to know what is the optimal number of employees in this profession that would determine adequate staffing levels. From a basic Google search, The generally accepted student-to-teacher ratio is around 18 students to every one teacher. I think we can assume that the general feeling is a teacher can be reasonably expected to be effective with a class size of 18 students, providing adequate attention to the needs of each student and varying learning needs. Better skilled teachers probably can handle more, while lesser experienced or lower performing educators probably need smaller class sizes to be effective at the same level. In America, there are an estimated 49,500,000 students enrolled in our public education systems. So to meet the preferred ratio of 18 students to every single teacher, there needs to be almost 3 million teachers in the public education system. Keep in mind, the estimates ignore private school or home-schooled students and teachers. So how many teachers are there in America? According to government statistics, there are almost 4 million teachers in our public education system. Well over the minimum need to meet the preferred student-to-teacher ratio. So on face value, there appears to not be a shortage simply on the macro level numbers. But we must also keep in mind that the macro industry data may not reflect the situation at the micro or community. We know that there are many places where the student to teacher ratio resembles the ratios seen at the collegiate level. Some areas where the student population is understated are skewed because students cross into districts that they technically do not belong to, based on municipalities, not school choice programs but simply people using other people's addresses to access schools that they perceive are better. Now, there are also many areas where there are many certified or licensed educators with good standing not in the system looking for work. So, one may argue that if there were a true shortage, these individuals would be employed, barring any bans or reputation issues. There are also potential issues of projected retirements versus predicted new teachers. So there still may be legitimate overall staffing concerns maybe there is not a shortage issue based on the macro data. But maybe they may feel like this because of the geographic disparity in funding. Generally, I have no issue with a community wanting to have a better portfolio of public services, including education. If the taxpaying base is willing to fund new innovations, staffing levels, or better curriculum, then why should they be held back simply because another area is not able or willing to do the same for their constituents. I never believe that people should be anchors to others. But I do think that education is an important institution that impacts our economic competitiveness, public safety, public spending, and quality of life. We should consider if there are ideas that could help improve the quality of instruction and afford all systems the staffing levels and quality in a somewhat standardized manner. Traditionally, public education is similar to a franchise business model. The states determine the standards and curriculum, and the local policymakers and school boards operate the actual systems and determine their preferred manner of meeting those standards if they actually do meet those standards. Communities with better tax bases and the need to attract high-wage employees will aim to exceed those standards to attract new residents and higher housing prices. Others may struggle to meet the minimum. Now, I do believe that local direction can be more effective than a national approach on many issues. Some areas the federal government is a better path of governance. Other issues, states are better incubators for other states to emulate and repeat. But maybe local towns should not be in complete control. Should we consider shifting the operational control and funding of school systems from the local governments to the states, where the states determine a model for educating students and then the schools are distributed around the respective states to afford equal access? Right now they are more like franchises, where the communities operate the systems using state curriculum and guidance, but there is great disparity. Again, I do believe effective public policy considers localized needs and input, but maybe improving standardized quality will improve economic outcomes and the quality of labor. Although I do support school choice to allow students to meet their personal educational needs while avoiding the consequences of bureaucratic failure and incompetence, a standardized system could reduce the need for the program that has helped so many students across America. Another solution may be changing how we prepare our educators and get beyond the status quo thinking. While the 18 students to one teacher may be a desired target, it might not be reasonable based on the reality of the situation. Maybe we identify methods to allow educators to be more effective with alternate environments. Because with the influx of illegal aliens with children in need of education, that 18 to 1 ratio may be exceeded pretty quickly. Are there technology solutions to reduce burdens of certain aspects of teaching allowing educators to focus on areas where there is the greatest benefits? Maybe artificial intelligence solutions could help in this area. Maybe not. Something to consider though. Education is critical to our society and economy. We should ensure that America does everything possible to ensure people can graduate and get gainful employment. Rather than going from diplomas to dependency. Another interesting shortage I read about recently was regarding accountants. The number of accountants graduated by colleges and universities is dropping significantly. And the overall number of accountants employed in our economy is decreasing too. While at the same time, the complexity of financial reporting continues to increase. One benefit of having an accountant background is being able to see insights in numbers typically missed by most. That is why people with accounting backgrounds are desired outside of the accounting fielding. As our economy is becoming more tech-savvy, data skills are growing in importance. Especially with greater scrutiny by regulators and politicians wanting to see more in reporting. Unlike the shortage with teachers, I believe this shortage can be somewhat mitigated with technology solutions. I believe much of the reporting duties done by accountants can be done with artificial intelligence or other solutions with less accountants employed to serve as subject matter experts much of what accountants do has been automated over the last couple decades. So it is not surprising that there is decline in those pursuing this field. I think this is an area that can be resolved by technology to some degree. There will always be some potential shortages in staffing areas as students aim for careers that pay high and afford them a lifestyle they desire. Technology changes, shifts in consumer preference, and others can change the labor market, creating mismatches. There are interesting approaches to addressing these shortages. For instance, there are many people interested in the field of education because of loan forgiveness. That helps shore up the pipeline for the future. Other fields may have to import talent not available domestically. Not enough for doing job training to help transition workers experts in different fields move to fill the needs of their respective industries. Maybe that is a shortage we need to address. Now let us bring the team back in for another discussion. The one thing that Joe Biden did that was good recently was pumping the brakes on the idea of admitting Ukraine into NATO while still at war with Russia. While much of the world is still in the mode of supporting Ukraine without any question, I think the idea of NATO admitting a nation in conflict with the nation that it was built to contain was not rational. Think about it for a moment. If a nation is at war with a common enemy, then the next missile that lands once would then potentially trigger Article 5 of the NATO agreement, which is not ideal if you want to avoid World War III. For both Jennifer and Javi, Did Biden make the right call here and should we be growing NATO so rapidly as we are now?
1: I think it was the right call to put a stop to the immediate acceptance of Ukraine into NATO. A nation at war with the enemy that the organization is built to isolate is not the best candidate for admittance. May not be a good thing for that nation as well. I do think that expanding NATO can be a good thing for our collective defense. As long as the new members live up to expectations and their commitments. An issue I think some have is whether it makes sense to admit former Soviet members or nations bordering Russia. To some degree, it may look like you are finding any reason for conflict with Russia by admitting nations that are most likely to be a target of Russia or ones that it would like to keep in its sphere of influence.
2: There seems to be a rush to expand NATO. I understand there is strength in numbers. More allies that will contribute to a common defense reduces the burden on any one particular member. But I also believe that it exposes all to the potential reckless actions of individual members. For instance, I think we have to somewhat question the actions of NATO member Turkey, which seems to be exploiting the situation for its own regional influence. Holding up membership for Sweden for no good reason. While at the same time playing buddy-buddy with the common enemy. Let us not forget that they were a source of trouble in Syria and other areas that directly countered our interests. I think it is important to understand who we are allied with and whether they can be trusted to live up to their end of the bargain. Can they be trusted to act as allies or will they seek their own self-interests when directly countering interests of our allies? Understandably, there are times when a member will need to act unilaterally in the face of opposition of the membership, as long as it is not at the direct expense of the membership. Some NATO fanboys will point out that former president Trump riled up the members with America first, but it was never against the alliance just to notice that our interests must be top of mind and that all members need to live up to their commitments, which many were not. The reason this matters is because if we admit every nation that wants to join because of fear of Russia or China, we must know that they will not act recklessly leading to members being potentially drawn into conflicts unnecessarily or diplomatic concessions caused by misjudgment of a nation that will not be a significant contributor to the response. We are aware that the Article 5 Declaration is not automatic but we might want to consider the impact of adding allies in the former Soviet bloc. Or consider adding tenets in their agreement to ensure that we are not drawn into war. Some people with protections may act more boldly than they otherwise would.
0: Now, let us move on to the Republican side of the picture for next year's pivotal presidential election. The frontrunner continues to be former President Donald Trump, who still maintains a large appeal and steady polling numbers that has not eroded even with the indictments and new entrants. I guess the federal government determined that Trump needs another indictment regarding the 2020 election. How can we explain the strength of his support? One view may be that the field of competitors is not very convincing. The biggest challenger in the field was supposed to be Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Although highly popular and successful in his state, he has not made a major dent in the polling yet. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is in the field, who was a very successful Republican governor in a traditionally blue state. But he lacks the national appeal and some distorted perceptions around controversies. Former Vice President Mike Pence is running against his former boss, but is not garnering much support. Neither is Nikki Haley, who served on the Trump administration as well. There are many qualified candidates. These two governors alone did very well for their states. Unlike California Governor Gavin Newsom from our earlier segments, people want to flock to Florida in contrast to the people fleeing California because of the policies Newsom champions. New Jersey was in much better hands with Chris Christie than it is with Phil Murphy, who has done a great deal of harm to my home state. Another view of the situation is that there are a great number of people who agree with Trump's controversial assessment of the 2020 election. So they are supporting him because they view he was wronged. The political actions of the federal law enforcement agencies are helping fuel this narrative. The overcharging and elevating misdemeanors are making Trump more likable. The question for Republicans is whether Trump can win in November 2024. The polls suggest that he can defeat Biden. He is polling well against the struggling current leader. But there are a great number of people who will not consider voting for Trump at all. What is the right path for America's conservative party in such a critical moment?
1: For quite some time, we have said that Republicans and Americans overall can have the benefits of Trump's policies without the controversial behaviors and leadership style. Trump's policies were largely successful. His economy provided real gains, real wage growth, and created real opportunities for all people regardless of their demographic makeup. For the first time, there was improvement for all Americans occurring at the same time. But Trump was his own worst enemy at times, making everything about himself and not just the great work his policies did for the people. Trump's border policies were working. Now communities are fighting amongst themselves while being overburdened with migrants they cannot afford with sanctuary policies they no longer want. All while the president enjoys ice cream and early nights. Trump's foreign policy actually fostered peace, not putting us on the brink of World War III like we currently are at. In a year, we may have multiple global conflicts occurring with no real effective American response. Our support to Ukraine has drained our munitions. The question is whether any of the fellow Republican contenders can articulate that they can foster a thriving economy, safe society, and peaceful world. Right now, They are not doing well to make their case. I still believe in DeSantis' appeal because he has shown policy success and political savvy. But I do think he will need to do something different to improve his numbers. Pence, Haley, Scott Christie, and others are just not moving the needle. Essentially, they are in the race for a vice president pick rather than the top of ticket spot. In fairness to these qualified candidates, Trump continues to receive obsessive coverage from a media obsessed with the former president. Therefore, He gets free promotions while the rest struggle to gain attention. The start of the debate schedule will be helpful to help provide a forum to the field. This is where DeSantis has to shine. Interesting to see if Trump shows up or decides to skip the first debate. If he does stay away, it can provide a clear advantage and dual channels to narrate their way to closer to the top. We will see.
2: The real race for the Republican nomination is really between former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at least in the current moment. Trump has held the position and performed well from a policy perspective. But his behavior has made many people uncomfortable with the idea of him being our president. Governor DeSantis is clearly the best-performing governor in the United States right now. Florida is a top destination for people fleeing the blue state mess that is California, New York, and New Jersey. Florida has been the pivotal case study for those supporting conservative public policy. DeSantis is presidential and America deserves to finally have someone who can govern and lead. For the rest of the field, they lack a broad enough appeal to make them legitimate candidates. Maybe during the debates they offer ideas that wow the public or articulate flaws in their opponents. But right now, they are simply not attractive to what we need and their records are good, but not overwhelming. The Republican nomination is about policies, principles, and performance. This is not the Democrats where it is all about demographics, hysteria, and decline. I will say that anyone in the Republican field would make a better president than the Democrat field. But many are not saying anything other than the same vanilla statements. Trump benefits from a media that obsesses about him. They cover him far more than they do the current administration. I am not sure we can call the media the news media rather the talk media. The talk media keep giving free promotion to Trump, which the others will have to overcome. Politics is all about attention. The best ideas are not always the most visible. But people cannot vote for things they do not see. Well, at least they prefer not to.
0: Thank you to both Jennifer and Javi. I look forward to our conversations next week. Finally, let us close on my favorite area to discuss, the world of sports and entertainment. A much lighter subject area. I recently read an article from The Athletic, where Jim Bowden discussed the realignment of baseball if Major League Baseball decides to expand with two additional teams in the near future. In place of the traditional National and American Leagues, the realignment idea would consist of Eastern League or Eastern Conference and Western League or Western Conference, with each conference having four divisions of regionally-based teams. I am not a prisoner of the moment person that holds on to tradition, but I am also not a person who wants change for change's sake. I think new ideas should be evaluated to project whether the outcomes will be better than the current system with greater effectiveness and efficiency and what is the cost of change or risks associated. Sometimes you cannot go back once you change direction. What is the benefit of the proposal? The potential benefits listed were savings in terms of travel costs and days spent by teams traveling between cities or crossing the nation or going up and down a coastline. In theory, the new alignment would allow teams to play the bulk of their games in their region. Depending on if the new model calls for reversing interleague play or reducing it to the point that there would be financial benefit. Like many articles on The Athletic, this is a good read. I think the idea makes sense. Jim Bowden is a baseball expert with great experience in the game. I would like to ask his take on how the game could survive the loss of some traditional rivalries in a sport that already struggles with recapturing fans. Would the casual baseball fan in Los Angeles be attracted to see the Dodgers no longer be division rivals with the Giants? I think the alignment would create a must-see division in the Eastern Conference North Division featuring the Philadelphia Phillies, the New York Yankees, the New York Mets, and the Boston Red Sox all in one division. Probably would be the most expensive division in all of American professional sports. I think the current Phillies would do well in this division, given the current state of the other three teams. That is somewhat of my bias. In the presence of two additional teams, there would need to be a switch to represent the same four-division model that the NFL has just to make the numbers work. That is a given. So the current five team divisions would lose one team to make the math work. I am just not sure that baseball would be at its best with regional divisions where four of the biggest spenders are in one division and the other divisions are less competitive, based on the current state of the teams. Obviously, natural adjustments would occur. People, organizations, industries, and societies will adjust to change. Not always in the manner expected. But there will be an adjustment if baseball does go down this path. Teams would adjust to the new competitive structure. New rivalries would form and the league would adjust. Maybe we no longer see the Braves versus Phillies or Braves versus Mets. But the game would move on in a different manner. The question is whether the change is what we want to see? Is geographic-based realignment the best path forward? The argument is based largely on the impact on cost and reduction of travel burden. Cost-cutting is important in any business but it should not be the sole reason for uprooting an entire operation and potentially impacting the quality of the product. Does realignment impact the quality of baseball? I think it would. Not in the right manner. I am not sure that baseball would be best served if every team just retreated to play in their respective regions of America. I believe that baseball needs more of their teams to become national brands like the Yankees, Red Sox, and Dodgers. I think the current national and American league structure is better in terms of having leagues that are both equally representative of the nation as a whole rather than just a region. While the geographic alignment is not a foreign idea, I think it is one that is becoming obsolete as well. Besides the NBA and NHL, the sports leagues most associated with geographic alignment is college sports. Primarily college football and college basketball. College sports is going through a great change away from geographic alignment towards a model aligned by brand power and quality of competition. For instance, the Big Ten Conference once represented powerhouse teams representing the central region of the United States. Now, the conference of soon-to-be 16 teams will span from sea to shining sea, comprising both New York and Los Angeles football television markets. The Southeastern Conference is well beyond just the Southeastern region of the United States. Quality of competition broke the geographical angle. I believe the current National and American Conference is a much better approach than the geographic alignment because each conference is representative of the nation rather than simply just regions, while still having that geographic aspect in regards to the divisions. Again, leaning on the college example, I think competitive balance matters and not sure the proposed model from the athletic article really factors that in. The Red Sox, Yankees, Phillies, and Mets would be in the same division, limiting the postseason sports for some of the biggest markets in the sport. Also, teams in the NBA and NHL still travel to play against every team in the league, and I assume that Major League Baseball would continue this tradition starting this year. The savings would be negligible or can be matched with strategic scheduling. But I think the article is a great read and a thought-provoking idea worth the consideration of every baseball fan. But I think we can regionalize the conference. Let the champions of each conference be representative of the entire nation, not just one region or another.
1: A big thank you to all of you in the audience. Your viewership is appreciated and valued. Please follow the Christopher Peter Review on social media and continue to visit www.crcreview.com for new episodes. Thank you once again. Until next time.